Amen. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis. Genesis uh, chapter 11. Well, 10 too. We're going to start there. But our text this morning is in Genesis, Genesis 11. Now, uh, you might remember last Sunday we, uh, we concluded our study in the book of 1 uh, Peter. We were there for, for uh, several months, and in the final sentences of that letter, Peter, who was writing from Rome, conveys a somewhat cryptic greeting to the churches he's writing to in Asia Minor with this phrase, she who is in Babylon greets you. It's found in verse 13 of 1 Peter 5. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. And we discovered that she who is in Babylon is actually the church in Rome. That's kind of a code word or a pseudonym, if you will, for the church in Rome. The feminine pronoun she is used several times in the New Testament to refer to the church or the bride of Christ. And Babylon is the most mentioned city in all of the Bible outside of Jerusalem. But it's more than a city, we learn. In Scripture, Babylon is a symbol of all that is opposed to God and that oppresses God's people. Even more, it is the title or the name of the spiritual forces of evil behind all rebellion against God and against God's truth and against God's commands. And at the time of Peter's writing, that spirit, that spiritual force of evil was centered in Rome, which was the capital of the Roman Empire, which oppressed and persecuted the church for the first 350 years. Now, since Rome, many empires have, have come and gone, but the spirit of Babylon has not. In the course of history, the spirit of Babylon rises and falls and rises again in the last few years. It is rising very quickly again and will, whether or not that is right around the corner or not, it may be, but will once again reach its pinnacle, its height of power in the days just before Jesus Christ returns. And so understanding ancient Babylon and understanding future Babylon helps us, will help us stand firm under the present spirit of Babylon that is working through the powers that be right now to oppose God and to oppress God's people, believers in Jesus Christ. We're going to learn how to navigate that and how to stand strong in the world in which we live. And to do that, we're going back to the beginning, Genesis 10 and then Genesis 11, which is where our main text is today. And let's begin by looking at that, Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now it says the whole world had one language and a common speech. As the people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, 
Let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from all over the earth, from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, to really understand this passage, and this is quite common, you have to kind of back up a little bit to see what comes right before that. For, that, that, for us, that would be the previous two chapters in Genesis. In chapter 9, briefly, following the flood, God reissued the uh, creation mandate that he originally gave to Adam, and he told Noah, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That's basically what God had originally said to Adam. He restates that now after the flood to Noah and his seven descendants. Then in chapter 10, we have the account of um, Noah and his sons carrying out that mandate to be fruitful and increase in number in the form of a genealogical record. And then in chapter 11, we have this account of the Tower of Babel. What's really important to realize is that the first nine verses of chapter 11 do not historically come after chapter 10. They are actually part of the time period that chapter 10 covers. Chapter 10 is also called the Table of Nations because it lists both the descendants and the nations that come from Noah's sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And it does this, it provides this genealogical record of 70 nations uh, by dividing um, three histories, the history of Japheth, the history of Ham, and the, the history of Shem. Three different ones. You get one, and then the other, and then the other. Now, there's some things that are notable in each one of these histories or genealogical records. Notable in Japheth's history is the second half of verse 5, where it says the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families and their nations. So obviously this refers to a time frame long after what we just read in Genesis 11. This refers to a time frame where the nations were scattered. Genesis 11:1 1 starts with them not being yet scattered. Notable in Shem's history, the third son is the first half of verse 25, which highlights a descendant four generations from Shem whose name was Peleg. One was named Peleg because in his time the earth was divided. So this refers to a time frame just after the rebellion that we see in chapter 11. This is after that, and it records the scattering of the people at that point. Now, most notable, though, among all of these genealogical records is that of Ham's. It's found in verses 8 through 12, because in it we find the story of a particular character whose name, and he's a character, whose name was Nimrod. Verse 8 reads, Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that's why it is said, quote, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, end quote. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, Kalna, and Shinar. 
From that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ur, and Kalah, and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kalah, which is the great city. Now, nobody else gets this much text. There might be a little thing said here about one of the descendants or a little thing there said about another descendant. But here we, we have all these many verses just about one descendant in this large genealogical record, and that is Nimrod. Now, why? Why is Nimrod so significant here? Again, no other descendant is highlighted this way. Why is it that he gets so much attention? Well, the answer is found in those verses. It's really found in chapter 11, but that can only be explained when we first look at verses 8 through 12 in chapter 10. There's three things we learn about Nimrod here. First of all, Nimrod was a rebel. That's what his name means. Actually, his name means rebellion. Now, what mother is going to give birth to a child and immediately give the name rebellion to that child? Not a good thing to do, right? So this name was probably given to Nimrod after he did what he did. He came to be known that. Nimrod was the leader of a revolt against God. Not a military revolt, but a cultural and spiritual revolt through the Babylonian system that had its roots in him. Second thing we know about Nimrod is that he was mighty. It says three times he was. First, he was called a mighty warrior on the earth. The Hebrew word there is gibor. It means mighty one, generically, just a, a mighty one, which in the Hebrew conveys the idea of someone who was violent, who, um, who had tyrannical powers, if you will. It was a violent word. And that's probably why the NIV translates it mighty warrior. But the word warrior is not really there. It's just implied. Secondly, he was called a mighty hunter before the Lord twice, before the Lord. And before the Lord means before or in the face of the Lord, and it can be taken either way. We are, a person is either under the face of the Lord or they are opposing the face of the Lord. In this case, it's the second. He was opposing. This indicates, again, his rebellious nature. But he's also a mighty hunter. But the name, but the hunter thing doesn't really apply to the ability to hunt wild game. He was not a hunter of animals, as we'll find out. He was a hunter of men. He was a killer of men. It was through his ability to fight and kill and ruthlessly rule that he was able to do the third thing we find out about Nimrod, and that was he was the first ruler that we have recorded in human history and the first kingdom that we see. The first kingdom was Nimrod's. It was founded in a region that later on would be known as Mesopotamia, which is basically an area that falls between the Tigris and the Euphrates River in modern Iraq, somewhat northeast of Jerusalem. It's kind of that green area there and above. That's where his kingdom was established. His kingdom was comprised of, of nine cities. Verse 10 says that the center, the first centers of his kingdom were in Babylon, or then Babel. That's the city. And then all these other cities, some of them which are still today. Now, if you think about that and you look at that amount of area and you consider the time frame in which this happened, how could one man do all of that? How could he conquer and build 
and fortify. And these were, in essence, all city-states that were united together. How could he do that over such a vast region and simultaneously lead all of humanity in a rebellion against God? Well, the Bible says he was a mighty one, a mighty human being, perhaps, but maybe more than a mighty human being. Interestingly enough, the word mighty one that is used here to describe Nimrod was also used to describe the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. They were also, by the same word, called mighty ones. Let's go back and read that. We covered it a few weeks ago, but there's something here that we need to see in order to fully understand Nimrod's impact on Babel. It says in verse 1 of Genesis 6, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal, their days will be 120. This is basically not saying a human being shall live to 120, they were living longer, but rather I'm going to give them 120 years and then I'm going to do something. That something, of course, was the flood. Then it says in verse 4, the Nephilim, or Nephilim, were on the earth in those days and also afterward, or after the flood, when the sons of God went into the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. There's that phrase, mighty man, mighty one. Now, I don't have time to revisit all the details of this very unusual passage, which I recently taught about two months ago. But if you're interested, you can go to the First Peter series, Lesson 19. However, a short recap will help this morning in order for this to make sense. These verses in Genesis are about the sons of God. And that phrase, sons of God, in the Old Testament always refers to angels. It refers to angels over and over again, or God's heavenly family. It might make uh, sense to understand that angels are God's heavenly family and redeemed human beings are God's earthly family, all part of, of God's family. Now, obviously, these sons of God sinned and fell from that position because they left the bounds that God had established for them. Jude 6 talks about this in the New Testament. They married and mated with the daughters of men, producing offspring that were called the Nephilim, or giants, or heroes, or men of renown. By the way, in that other sermon I was talking about, we talk about how, yes, angels can procreate. You'll have to go listen to that to understand that. To understand that. Now, What's interesting about this is that, you know, much of the mythology of the Greeks and the Romans and the other civilizations finds its origin, ironically, not in superstition, but in the reality of the Nephilim, in the reality of it. Yes, the rest was superstition, but here it started out in something that actually happened. This satanically inspired sons of God, daughters of men hybrid corrupted the whole human race, both morally and genetically, to the point where God, several hundred years later, 
imprison the fallen sons of God. We find that in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And also destroyed the Nephilim corrupted humanity and started over with eight human beings, Noah and his family. Now, the thing I want to draw your attention to and all that is for this, Genesis 6-4 says the Nephilim existed after the flood. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards or after the flood. So we don't know how that happened. We don't know how the Nephilim reappeared. The Bible doesn't tell us how, but just that they did exist after the flood. And it is possible. We don't know for sure, but it is possible that the reason Nimrod was so powerful was because he was one of the Nephilim that appeared after the flood. Nimrod, like the Nephilim of Genesis 6, is referred to as a mighty one. A mighty one. And by the time we get to Daniel's day, about two millennial later in Babylon, Nimrod is actually worshipped as the primary god in Babylon, and by then his name is Marduk. We'll look at that more later on. But even more interesting, here's what's more interesting. When the children of Israel um, were about to enter the land of Canaan, they sent spies on a recon mission to check out the land. And Canaan, of course, was the name of the land where Canaan and his descendants settled. And one of Canaan's descendants was his nephew, Nimrod. So the people in Canaan were descendants of Nimrod. So the 10 spies came back and they said this. 12 came back, 10 of them said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. All the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the what? The Nephilim there. Here they are again, the giants. And so all of this to say, Babel or Babel, Nimrod's city, his first city in his first kingdom was no average city. It was a massive enterprise of human and superhuman power, all of which manifested together in the building of a, of a tower in the midst of the city. Let's revisit that again. Now it says in verse 1 of Genesis 11, now the whole world had one language and common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, the account of the building of Babel begins... By saying all the world had one language, a common language, as would be expected, due to the fact that everyone came from one man, Noah. Apparently, under the influence of Nimrod, though, they began to congregate in a region called Shinar, which is where Babylon is. And the reason was, is because they didn't want to be scattered throughout the whole earth, which was a direct disobedience to what God had issued to them, the command, go into the earth be fruitful, fill the earth. They were saying, no, we don't want to be fruitful and fill the earth. We're going to stay in one place. Now, for these folks, you have to remember the flood was not a distant memory. And they all knew the command of God. 
But they went along with this rebellion. Why is that? Well, like many times afterwards in human history, people fail to resist the evil of Nimrod and therefore eventually become a part of it. If you don't resist cultural evil, you begin to accept it and eventually become a part of it, even though at the beginning you were offended by it. That's why Romans 12 warns us, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. You can't have sincere love without hating the evil that destroys people's lives or that's in rebellion against God. Unfortunately, the weight of evil sometimes can be so heavy and depressing that it's easier to distract oneself from it and to act as if it's not really that bad. But love without the hatred of what God calls evil is not a sincere love. It is a hypocritical love that is losing its grip on what is good or not clinging to what is good anymore. And when enough people follow that pattern, it results in an environment where evil is called good and good is called evil. That's what happened in Babel. That's what happened there. That's what happened under, under Nimrod, and that's what's happening in our culture today. Only a few people are resisting the moral darkness in our culture because they are afraid of Nimrod, who almost has complete control of the government, the courts, the business, the arts, the media, and definitely education. I could give you hundreds of examples of this. Just let me give you a few. A student at William & Mary University, Skylar Culbertson, wrote an article last month stating that men cannot have babies. She has actually received documented death threats for writing that paper. Just for writing that paper. Death threats in this country. Two weeks ago, under oath, in a congressional hearing, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona refused to define a woman. Ironically, Cardona's job includes enforcing Title IX, which involves protecting women from discrimination. But he cannot define what a woman is. Two weeks ago, a bill was introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives, H.R. 734, that would prohibit school athletic programs from allowing individuals whose biological sex is at birth is male from participating in programs designed for women or girls and using their changing rooms. Unfortunately, every member of one party voted against it. The NEA, which is the biggest organization for public school teachers in the America, absolutely condemned it. And if it passes the Senate, our president has promised to veto it. One more quick one. In Keele, Wisconsin, three eighth grade boys were suspended from school for not using the preferred pronouns of one of their classmates. Let me, this 
whole transgender ideology has been unleashed like a blitzkrieg, and it's not unlike Nimrod leading the people eastward to build a tower in Babel. It has evolved from a disorder needing treatment to a so-called orientation, to a political movement, and finally today to an identity that entitles you to superior rights over everyone else. And when you speak God's truth into these kind of scenarios, Babel comes to destroy you, to cancel you, to arrest you. But we can't be afraid of Babel. We can't be afraid of Nimrod. And at the same time, love the people that Babel is deceiving. You have to not be afraid. You have to speak the truth in love. But how? Because how is it possible really to love somebody and not say something about a deception that is actually destroying them, destroying the image of God in them? That's why First John says there is no fear in love. Where there is love, there is no fear. Because perfect love drives out fear. But that love cannot be divorced from God's truth. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So, in Nimrod's day, the people of the earth began migrating eastward. Under the spiritual and cultural force and manipulation of Nimrod, they sought to centralize themselves. And they did so, the text says here, for three reasons. Two are specific and one is implied. Number one, to build a city for themselves. Number two, to make a name for themselves. And number three, to form a religion for themselves. And so the first thing they needed, of course, to do this is some building materials. And so they said, come let us make bricks and, and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar, which is in abundance in Iraq, for mortar. And since there was no naturally occurring stone in the valley, the Euphrates Valley, they baked bricks and again used tar for mortar. Next, they said, all right, now we have the bricks. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And reaches to the heavens there doesn't necessarily mean, you know, way, way up touching the heavens, so to speak. Sometimes you see these pictures of the Tower of, of, of Babel, artist renditions of these towers that somehow go all the way up in the sky. They couldn't have done that with bricks. It wasn't a great building product to build high. It's amazing how high they did build, though. But it just meant they built something that was relatively high there. And that meant, of course, it had to have a, a large base. Um, it probably looked something like this, maybe not quite as cementy looking. A bit more bricky looking would be a better rendition. It was huge. Archaeologists tell us that it was about 300 feet cubed. 300 feet by 300 feet and 300 feet tall, made of bricks, and those base walls were about 40 feet wide. And the reason they made it so large and towering over the city was, it says here, they were going to make a name for themselves. Instead of, of course, making something that exalted God, they were making something that was going to exalt them. It was emblematic now of their united unity, their united glory of what human beings could accomplish without God if they simply worked together and united with one another. You know, it's interesting how ingenuity and discovery and Breakthroughs in technology, bricks made instead of stones. That was a technological advancement. How those things often lead to, to prideful ambition. 
They deceive us into thinking we don't need God. We can solve our own problems. That's the spirit of the world, the spirit of Babylon. We can, we can fix ourselves. I know things are absolutely falling apart, but we are fixing ourselves. We can achieve our own happiness outside of God's design. We can create a better world for ourselves. We, singing, are the world. What a lie. What a lie from the pit of hell. You know, not much has changed, has it? Humanity is still calling out, come let us build a city for ourselves with a tower. The city of man, the city by man, and the city for man's glory. And we also have here in this text the first attempt to bring all of humanity under one government, which throughout Scripture is seen as rebellion by God. Jesus is the one that God has designated to bring all humanity under one government, his government, and that will happen at his second coming. Isaiah 9, 6 says the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he shall be called the prince of peace. And all other attempts to produce that unity are rebellion against God. And therefore, God has set boundaries to nations, and he's done so for a reason. But this tower was also built for another reason. It was built to reach the heavens, not only in terms of its height or size, but also in terms of its purpose, which it seems was religious in nature. The ancients believed that deities dwelt in the high places. And so if they were building a, a, an altar, they would do it in a high place. But this, this valley in Babylon was a very low pace. So what do we do? Build a fake mountain. And those mountains were called ziggurats. And they're found, the remains are found all throughout that area. Substitute mountains. Here's the remains of one near ancient Ur, just to show you that the base of this still exists today. So the tower in, in Babel was not the only ziggurat in ancient Mesopotamia, but apparently it was the first. Babel was not always called Babel, however. That's what God named it on account of the confusing of the languages. The actual name was Babalim, which in the vernacular there meant gate of the gods. So this place was the gate of the gods. So the tower was not an attempt to get up to God, but rather the means of rejecting God by creating a high place to worship other gods. And it is from this tower that every other religion in the world emanated. The Bible traces all false religion back to this tower in Babylon, which makes sense in the light of Romans 1, which says, when a people reject the knowledge of the one true God revealed in his creation, they will inevitably turn to other gods and the idols that represent those false gods or demons. And that's true for all people of all false belief systems, even the atheist who worships the false god that says there is no god. Technically, everyone worships. The Bible teaches that. They either worship the one true God revealed in Scripture, or they worship a god, a false god like the Babylonians did. So how did the Lord respond to all of this? Well, verse 5 says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. 
And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. This is why it is called Babel, because the Lord there confused the languages of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So there's several thought-provoking, interesting uh, things here that I think can help us. The first thing is this phrase, come let us. Do you notice it's found three times in this passage? Three times. Earlier, the builders had called for the people to uh, presumably through some kind of council, it wouldn't be every person, but some representative council, come let us make bricks. That was the first thing. And then they repeated it, come let us build a city with a tower that reaches to heaven. But now God uses their same phrase. And as he assembles his heavenly council and moves to confuse their language, he says, come let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand. It's a play on words in the Hebrew language, and it basically means this. God always has the last say. We can assemble our councils but God will assemble his counsel, and the decree of God's counsel will always prevail. Therefore, those who choose to go their own way, instead of trusting in God, will always end up frustrated no matter what. It's only a matter of time because the prize they so diligently seek after becomes a bubble that bursts at the first touch. The sweet fruit of desire becomes sour in their mouth because God out of his love for us, as determined to make bitter anything that is treasured above himself. Fallen mankind will always chafe against this, but it will always be this way because we live in God's world, not our own. And the second thing here that's quite interesting is that God came down to see the tower the Babylonians were building. This does not mean that God actually got up off of his throne in heaven over the universe and came down to figure out or see or determine what the builders are doing. He's omniscient and omnipresent. There's not a point in the universe that God is not totally present. He doesn't have to go anywhere. He is everywhere already. Now, this is what is known as, as an anthropomorphism which is basically God describing himself in human actions or in human terms so that we can understand him, so we can relate to him in this, in this sense right here, so we can understand his greatness. See, what we here have here is man attempting to build a, a great tower, and the top was to reach in, into the heavens. And it was to be so great that it defied God and that it exalted mankind. And there it, there it stood, unequaled in magnificence lofty, reaching up to the heavens. But when God wants to look at what man calls lofty and elevated, he does not have to look up or go up. He has to come down. He has to stoop down to see the puny high place of man. Whether that be the Tower of Babel or the Great Pyramids of Egypt or One World Trade Center, all of them built of man 
and for man's glory, all of them are only a speck in comparison to the greatness of God. And the same thing is true when it comes to mountains in our life, the things in our lives that are challenging to us or that are, are hindering our walk with God or that have some way or another become an obstacle to us. They may look towering and beyond our ability to overcome. But from God's point of view, they are always very, 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 very small. We must always remind ourselves of that, that our view is not the final or actual assessment of it all. We may look up at this huge mountain, but God looks down upon it. What is impossible with man is possible with God. All things are possible to him who believes in the God who looks down on the minuscule, what man calls great. And so God came down, and he judged their rebellion, not with a flood as before, but by confusing their languages and scattering them throughout the whole earth, fulfilling, of course, the original mandate that he gave to Noah. Now look, he gave the mandate. The people said, we're not going to do it. He said, we're doing it anyway. Amen. He's not limited. He may choose to use human beings, but he is not limited by human beings. Through the prophet Isaiah, he said, my decree will stand, and I will accomplish all that I will to do. And Ephesians 1 tells us just that. Through everything we see, just like we sang this morning, even though I don't understand what you're doing, he is working out the purpose of his will in everything. One day we'll look back on it. In fact, I think maybe that might be some of uh, one, of the great re- one of the reasons for the great amount of praise and worship. We'll finally see how he intricately and personally and exactly wove his will through everything that we thought were random things that were, that were things that were going to lead to something bad, but God was actually using them for something good. We'll be amazed at his power and his sovereign grace that acted uh, for his glory and for our good. And that's what Romans 8 just tells us, doesn't it? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who are following his purposes. God works for, his, for our good and for his glory in all things. He is not limited. And so he came down and he judged. But this was not just an act of judgment. It was also, as many times God's judgments are, an act of mercy. For if this false unity was not stopped, nothing they planned to do, God said, in their rebellion against him, would be impossible for them. See, in the judgment, he confused the languages and divided the nations. But that was his grace because God was actually rescuing humanity from collective apostasy. Then and now, he will not permit rebellion in the human race to ultimately succeed. The city of man lies unfinished. Babel lies undone. Their place of of false unity is a place now that marks division. And that's by the grace of God, who will one day, one day, reverse this curse at Babel. He'll reverse the curse of the divided languages and the divided nations when the redeemed all gather together before the throne of God and together, together in one voice, sing, worthy is the Lamb. 
Babel reversed. Now, we've looked at two different uses of this phrase or of the word come in this story. The first was spoken by man to man against God. Come, let us build a city with a tower. The second was spoken by God to his heavenly counsel against against man. Let us go down and confuse their language. But it wouldn't be right to end without noting that the Bible also has a third use of the word come in which an invitation is given by God to man. God says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be white as wool. What does that mean? There is no sin that can keep you from God's love. There is no sin that can keep you from God's forgiving grace. The work of Christ on the cross was sufficient, no matter how, no matter what. There is nothing that you have done that can be too bad for God to forgive. And there's no good you can do to make you worthy enough to earn that love. It is all by God's grace. By grace, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The spirit and bride say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of water of eternal life. The spirit and the bride say, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the bride, there is the church. You know what that means? It means that if you're here this morning and you've never believed, not only does Jesus say come, not only does the Father say come, not only does the Spirit say, but everybody in this room who's a believer inwardly is saying, oh, please believe in Jesus today. The bride says to you, the bride of Christ, come to Christ. Say, how do I do that? Romans 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, how do I call on the name of the Lord? Romans says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead after he died on that cross for your sins, you will be saved. Say with your mouth, because you believe in your heart. Christ died as a substitute to bear the penalty of my sin before a holy God, and he did that perfectly so that God says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you may be believing in your heart right now. Let's confess it with your mouth. Should we do that together? Let's do that. I believe in Jesus Christ and that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose from the dead to make me right with God. I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Father, today we thank you for your word. Very unusual passage and yet very enlightening also. Help us, God, as the days uh, approach that we would be able to successfully navigate in a faithful way, living and representing you in this culture, knowing that you are with us and we have nothing to fear. 
and that perfect love casts out all of that fear. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. You may stand. I'm gonna ask our prayer team to come forward. If you need prayer for anything, we'll be down here for a few minutes after the service. If you can hang out in fellowship, we always encourage that. If not, travel.